This is the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting and fishing radio on the AHP Digital Radio Network. Visit us at australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Here's the host of the show, Jason Selms. Welcome back to the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting and fishing radio here on the AHP Digital Radio Network. Hope you guys are all out there having a good time hunting, shooting and fishing. Obviously, by the time you probably hear this podcast and when I've recorded it, uh, the gun shops just opened just a few days ago and uh, they've started to open up the less restrictions on our hunting here in New South Wales. I hope you've been enjoying all the shows. Uh, A lot of people have been messaging me saying, you know, loving the content going forward, loving that we're interviewing people overseas and they're really enjoying that. And like I said in a previous show, I've been really enjoying that too, just interviewing people not only from Australia but also overseas. And uh, I've said it you know, many times uh, throughout doing this show, you know, talking to people overseas, hunting and shooting, you know, is universal. We've got obviously got a lot of the same products, uh, a lot of the same interests in shooting, whether it's, you know, hunting, whether it's gathering game meat, uh, whether it's clay targets, pistols, shotgun, doesn't matter. It's universal, and we love our hunting, our shooting, and our fishing. So I'm going to keep doing uh, what I've always been doing. I'm really enjoying getting, just doing more of the hunting stuff. I really am. Uh, really been enjoying that, chatting to people, finding out about them, finding out about their hunting, shooting, and fishing activities. And uh, yeah, it's 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 paying off. The numbers are going up again, which is absolutely fantastic. Uh, so yes, welcome to the Australian Hunting Podcast. I've been going for about ten years now. So anyway, talking today, we're going to be talking about Tasmanian hunting. We're going to talk to Adrian Picken. Now you might remember if you go back to on the website AustralianHuntingPodcast.com.au and you click on the past episodes, uh, episode one hundred and five. This was way back in January 17, 2016. Now, I probably would have said it was two years ago, but in fact, it's about four and a half years ago. And uh, I interviewed Adrian's wife, Shauna, and she had a really, really good story to tell. Uh, I quite enjoyed doing that podcast. So if you want to go back and listen to Adrian's wife, you can go back and listen to AHP hashtag 105, uh, The Everyday Hunter with Shauna Picken. And uh, she had a really, really good story. I don't want to blow it if you haven't listened to it. So go and check that out and then you can come back and uh, listen to this show or listen to this one first and then go back and listen to Adrian's wife, Shauna. I hope you really, really enjoy that. So we're going to concentrate this podcast on discussing what they do in Tasmania. So species you can hunt in Tasmania. Uh, It's that little small island off uh, the coast of Victoria, which most of us sometimes forget about sometimes. But I want to talk about whether there's public land hunting down there, private land hunting, deer species, uh, all the things you can do in Tasmania to hunt, shoot and fish. And I know Shauna and Adrian have lived in Tasmania for a long time and uh, they love certainly love their hunting, shooting and their fishing. They love utilising the game meat, uh, cooking it and uh, showing what they can cook and the benefits of getting game meat out in the field. Of course, as just mentioned, you can go to australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. If you want to email me for any reason or it's something for the straight shooting, australianhuntingpodcast at gmail.com. And I think we're almost getting close to about 50 Patreon supporters. So, guys, that's totally awesome. If you like what we do here and you're willing to throw a few bucks my way, it's always appreciated. Don't feel like you have to, but it's appreciated. If you can, you can go to patreon.com forward slash AHP if you'd like to support the show. Uh, you can leave us a voicemail, like I said, on the website if you want something to play on straight shooting. That's the uh, on the right-hand side, slider bar, you'll see the send a voicemail. You can do it from your tablet, your PC, your phone. You can do it from everything. I think it's 90 seconds, as I've said a lot of times before this. So if you want to leave a question, you want to be on the air, Great. If you've got something to talk about and you want to be live on the air too when we do straight shooting, again, just send me a message, an email or on the Facebook page or Instagram or wherever you can get hold of me and uh, we'd love to have you on the show to talk about what you guys want to talk about because that's ultimately the most important thing. Uh, bringing people in, I've said it before on a, on a number of occasions, uh, especially friends that have been on the show. Listen, this is not my show. Uh, yeah, okay, technically on paper it is, but what I want it to be is pretty much everyone else's show too, somewhere they can come, give their opinion, honest opinions, tell people about their hunting and their shooting and be a part of the show. 
And, uh, you know, that's what that's what I want it to be. Not just mine. Uh, I want to get as many people as I can on the show as possible to either help out. Uh, I know it's always free. I don't really get paid for this, as most of you guys know, except for the awesome Patreon supporters that I do have and some of the ads running on the show. But as most of us know, it's a labor of love and it's a passion. And it's been going since 2011. So in early in March, I think 2021, it will be 10 years, a decade of doing this show. Totally unbelievable. And over 220 episodes. So what we'll do, we'll finish off there and we'll get into the interview with Adrian Picken. All right, Adrian Picken, welcome to AHP. Thanks for joining me. Great to have you with us after I uh, interviewed your wife uh, back, way back in January uh, 17 of 2016. So thanks for joining me. No, you're welcome, Jason. Thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to talk from Tasmania. No worries. That's what we're going to concentrate a bit on today, which is absolutely fantastic. But I don't think I've had a uh, you know husband-wife couple uh, on the show, so this would be the first uh, for me. Well, um, that's good. So Tasmania is a place most people should come down for hunting and fishing. Um, it's a, still the paradise that people don't know about. Um, there's a lot more down in Tasmania than, than people realise, and you can pretty much do most things throughout the year. Um, we've recently just been getting into a little bit more foraging with the mushrooms as well. It's been a bumper season. Um, so especially now with everything that's going on, it just brings home just the importance of what hunting and fishing has always been about, about being able to just get out there, enjoy yourself, and also put food on the table. So it's pretty much a win-win, really. So I'm hoping after this coronavirus comes through that we're going to see a lot more people wanting to connect back to where their food comes from. So um, it's great. And that's what we do. We sort of run this little blog, or Shauna runs this blog, The Honest Hunter, and the, the purpose of that really is just to document for us about what's in season and what's happening. And we share that information, but we're not trying to get any accolades or anything for it. It's just our live diary. We like sharing people. And if it can, people can learn a bit from it, great. Exactly. That's what it's all about, isn't it? Sharing and, you know, hopefully people enjoy the content and, you know, don't get angry with us over being hunters. Exactly. And, the, I mean, once you give people a bit of meat, whether or not, you know, it's rabbits or, you know, venison or wallaby and you share some of the spoils and, and show them how to cook it or give them some ideas, you know, it, it just makes so many friends. We've not met anyone that's involved in that sort of lifestyle that isn't willing to help and share ideas and, and concepts and I think unfortunately over the last whenever 20 30 years there's been an, an element of people that just have lost touch with who we are and connection to the food because you live in these cities I mean you can't go to the supermarket all the time it's just more plastic food imported and it's like well get a bit of a balance right it's all about balance and having respect for for your food and I think hunters are and fishers they're the people who are connected to the food and have respect for their food um, and I think that's something that we should all live by. You know, we don't do anything by excess, um, and we try and do everything in balance. And we're the ultimate conservationists. And unfortunately, there's some 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 quarters that just choose to ignore what we're all about. The reason why we've got these teeth. But, exactly. Uh, you know, exactly. we can only try. We can only try. Tell us about yourself. I guess a bit of history, because um, I'm. We spoke about it before the show, but I detected a bit of an accent, which I didn't know you had. So until we yeah, spoke so, on the phone for the first time, so I guess just give us a bit of a just a general history growing up, etc. Yeah, well, I was born in England. I was born in uh, Robin Hood country in Nottinghamshire uh -huh. um, back in 1969. <laughs> yeah. So you know, good old bow and arrow, um, which is quite fitting, really, given I live in Tasmania and you got Errol Flynn, um, and that's the thing we can talk about a bit later. Unfortunately, you can't do bow hunting here, which is a bit uh, a bit of annoyance. Anyway, so I moved to Australia in the late 1980s. Um, early in my days when I was a little tacker, I used to do a lot of fishing. My dad used to be a policeman, but used to do a lot of competition course fishing. Um, so as soon as I was old enough to hold a fishing rod, you know, I was out fishing with him and he'd go off and do the competition and I'll be right down the end of the competition with, you know, doing a little bit of fishing myself. And my granddad, he used to be a, um, a river warden and a gamekeeper. So when I was able to get a bit older, I was out there catching rabbits with him with the ferrets and getting a few um, pheasants. So I've been exposed to it when I was really little. Um, and then obviously when I got to um, high school and that other thing sort of got in the way, particularly with um, team sports. I used to do a lot of a lot of football, a lot of round football, and played quite competitively with that. And when I came to Australia, I was still doing football and a lot of surfing and got a lot of injuries. And I kept doing that for quite a while. It, it wasn't really until uh, 
probably about maybe 15 years ago when I was just starting to say, look, I'm getting too many injuries from this and I need to get into a different, back into something a little bit different and went back into my, into my hunting and a lot more fishing because it's pretty much one of the safest sports out there and you're still keeping fit. Um, I had too many. Last season, I finished breaking my ribs playing for goalkeeping twice in one season and did my knee and that was the end of it. I said, I need to give up. And, uh, you know, so I went and go back again and uh, reconnected to getting some food because we went to buy some rabbit imported from Victoria. Nothing against Victorians, but it was $18 a kilo imported from Victoria and there's rabbits running around in suburbia all over the joint. So got back into firearms, but then it turns out most of the rabbits were in suburbia. And my grandfather used to keep ferrets. So we got back into ferreting. We've got eight ferrets now that we use for rabbit control. And uh, getting rabbits now is a lot easier than trying to shoot them because people have a problem uh, shooting, obviously, with a firearm in, in suburbia. But we don't get any issues with, with the rabbits because we can't use a suppressor, which is annoying. So you shoot one rabbit, the rest run away. Um, but if you want a decent feed, bring out the ferret. So that's a tradition that's been around for years and years and years. And uh, it's a it's a good exercise. And it's gentle now. You don't have to get out super early. Don't get out from the spotlight. Uh, you're back by about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So we really like our, our rabbiting. So that's probably our main thing that, that um, we do. Um, and now we even judge the ferrets as well. So if you don't know what a ferret is, um, a lot of people seem to think that they are a bit like a rat. Not, I was thinking that before I uh, I was like, it's like a rat, you know, it's like a rat with a tail, but it, it's a lot smarter than a rat. So <laughs> Yeah, it, it's it's a carnivore, purely carnivore. You can't feed it um, vegetables, you can't feed it chicken, it, it's meat. It, it's meat. It, if you think like a mink or a weasel, they're not related to that, but that's a similar sort of uh, animal from that context. Um, they are domestic, ferrets are domesticated from polecats. Now, polecats are the wild ones. And this is where there's a lot of confusion because there's a colour, which is called a polecat colour in the ferrets. And when people say polecats, they try and think they're talking about a, a ferret and they're not. Because in New Zealand, as an example, they have wild polecats. And those polecats are what's causing the problem over there. Now in Tasmania, yeah. you can have um, you have ferrets and ferrets are domesticated and they wouldn't survive in the wild because they've been domesticated for so long. They're slightly different. Um, with the amount of feral cats and hawks and everything else, they, they wouldn't last very long. Um, but you can't import them anymore. So we've got a very small gene pool. That's something that I'm quite passionate about, trying to re-educate people to understand the importance of what ferrets are and how they can help conservation. And when you use tracking collars, um, you can't lose the ferrets anyway. And these tracking collars my grandfather was using 50, 60 years ago. So um, it's a pretty safe sport. But I do like shooting them as well. It's a lot of fun shooting them. Um, that can be a lot of fun, especially when you've got to snork up to them and you've got to do an 80-metre shot. Um, so I do like shooting as well, but there's not many properties we have access to um, because they're not, there's not that many around that are not in suburbia, so not like the old days because I really don't like poisons, don't like chemicals, and in Tasmania they still use the likes of Pinto and 1080, and they go, why waste it? Rabbit is a great meat, and it's just people just don't know how to cook it. Um, because it's got a strange bone structure. But if we could value it better, you know, when people are struggling to put good quality meat on the table, well, let's use the rabbits. Um, is that something you did back uh, before moving to Australia as well? Was ferreting something you did then too? Yeah, my grandfather was a gamekeeper. So he had uh, ferrets and he used to, um, over there, it's a lot harder in the UK because you've got more um, permafrosts. So often you're going to be dig quite deep. So he used to use us because he could hang us upside down to dig the rabbits out. Um, so often I'll be upside down hanging by my Wellington boots as I pull the ferrets and the rabbit out. So that's where I used to do it in the UK because it's it's very big over there. Um, it's a bit of a diet, has died a bit of an art in Australia, but we're now starting to see a bit of resurgence. A lot of people now just have the ferrets as pets. Um, but, yeah, that's where it originally started. And they said once I started retiring out of playing amateur Round football, um, we got back into ferreting. So, and they're great little pets. They really are cute. The only thing I've heard about is, and I don't know, you tell me because you obviously, for, for, I guess, first question, how many do you own? And I know they get a bit, some people reckon they get a bit bitey. Is that true? They, you know, they like to latch onto your fingers and stuff like that? Or is that the more you handle them, the less they do that? 
Yeah, that's more of a handling. It's one of those old myths that people do it. So the old the old guards used to say, uh, when you take your ferrets out, you know, don't feed them and all the rest of it. They 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 can bite. Like what it is is because they don't see that well. Uh, it's all about by smell. So if you're they can therefore if you've got an unusual smell, they don't know you. It's like a dog. If dogs seem to pick up when people are a bit funny, and they'll they'll be a bit standoffish. And the same with a ferret. If you handle them all the time. Um, they don't bite. Um, if you're a rabbit, different story. Um, <laughs> or if you've got, you know, you, you've, you've got a funny smell on you, there may be, but you treat them the same as your dog. Um, an aggressive dog will be exactly the same thing as an aggressive ferret. Um, but if you handle them right, they're great, they're great. Um, and I just think it's just the way the, the old wives' tale about people treating the old days when they used to say, oh, feed them on milk and bread. And you don't feed them milk and bread because they're a carnivore. Um, it's the reason why people say, "Oh, it's really stink." Well, if you're going to feed something bread and milk, it's it's going to go through them and give them an upset stomach. So, same principle. A lot of wife tales out there. And interestingly enough, as we sort of talk to a lot of people about ferrets and educate them, because we do a um, exhibits of ferrets at the Royal Agricultural Show every year, and you know, people are fascinated about ferrets and what they what they use for. Because there are been around helping farmers for a long, long time, and it was the peasants, the peasants, um, years and years ago, two thousand years ago, that um, used them to go and get the rabbits. Because obviously, they didn't have access to go and get the deer because that was left to the gentry, and it was the ladies of the house that used to go and get the um, the rabbit. Hence, why people used to say, "Oh, it's mutton, underground mutton." It's an old term, but really, <laughs> yeah. rabbit these days, if you treat it right, it's as good, if not better, than any free range chicken you can. You can put on the barbecue or put in the grill or in the oven. There's so many things you can do with rabbits. It's just incredible. Dumplings, rabbit dumplings. I'm lucky that Shauna just, you know, my wife, she's a really good cook and there's not many things that she can't cook. So I get very disappointed when we go to a restaurant. It always underperforms. And I go, why are we going to a restaurant eating this when you can make it 10 times better at home? So I'm pretty spoiled the time that's for sure i know it sounds yeah. like i think the key there is to get a wife that can cook i think that's the <laughs> and especially good at game cooking i might add yeah yeah she's very good at that yeah i mean i do my fair share but I, you know her speed <laughs> and uh, her quality of it, it i can't compete i'm the barbecue leave me with the barbecue i'm all right and the smoking i do like smoking on the barbecues and stuff so which is really good and believe it or not you should definitely try um barbecued rabbit um, a lot of people say, oh, it dries out. But if you treat it right, it doesn't dry out. It's just how you treat it. Yeah. When uh, you, yeah. Since we're on the topic of ferreting, that's a good place to start, actually. Like how many do you need when you're normally going to ferreting and what's the what's the process for people that haven't really done it before? I know they use nets and stuff like that, but can you sort of explain the process? Yeah, sure. So, look, you can manage with one rabbit, if you, one ferret if you wanted to. However, ferrets sleep pretty much 80% of the time, so they have a high metabolism. So they get very tired very quickly. So take having a couple with you is good because you want to rotate them. Um, because when you think about it, a rabbit is pretty big compared to a ferret. And uh, you come if a ferret comes across an old buck, a buck rabbit can really uh, knock a ferret around because of those strong legs that they pick they can kick at. Nine times out of ten, the rabbit will get out first, um, and you pick him up in purse nets because what you do. For those that don't know um, what a purse net is, it's pretty much, you think about a drawstring, uh, you, you go and find a warren, which is like multiple holes. And we've got a dog, which is really good, which speeds up the process. We've got Bear, who helps us to go, is that an active warren or not? Because sometimes uh, rabbits will move around depending on the seasons and the time of day, et cetera, and have different places that they'll stay in. But you put the nets over these holes, you put the tracking collar on, which is, I suppose, like a um, – not GPS, but I suppose like a metal detector, the easiest way of doing it, on the ferret. Put the ferret in one hole. You've got to be very quiet because if the rabbits can hear you, they won't bolt, and then you're, you're digging. Put the ferrets in or one ferret in, and then you bolt. they will then bolt the rabbit out. You catch the rabbit in the net. Just dispatch it with a sharp blow to the back of the net and keep moving on. And the biggest thing we're finding, I don't know about on the mainland, is that – um, a lot of the rabbits now, because they're not getting a lot of consistent rain, aren't really burrowing as much. So we use a long net. And a long net is a 100-metre, I suppose you could say, a fishing net with a drawstring at the top and the bottom. And that's often put around 
blackberry bushes or under shipping containers and the same thing you put the the ferrets in and then they flush the rabbits out but that long net i can tell you a story about that between my myself and shauna it catches everything and it, we argue about it all the time it's, it's banter between us but it just it's it's annoying because it catches up catches twigs catches everything but um but it's a very successful way of doing it so i've got a couple of rabbits in the freezer in the fridge now at the moment so yeah, it definitely sounds interesting. So how long does it take from to normally either A, get tired, or B, do you ever hear the rabbits? Do the rabbits ever go sort of toe-to-toe with them down in the warren, or how does it work down there? Yeah, no, you, what you'll often hear, this is what's good, where you don't want to go when it's too windy is because if it's an active warren, you'll hear it's almost like thunder because the rabbits will start to thump the back legs in the hole, and you'll hear that there's something going on, and the next minute, the rabbits will bolt out. Um, as I said, about 90, 95% of the time, the rabbits will come out and you won't have to dig. Generally, the only time you've got to dig is if what's known as a blind. It's almost like a dead end underneath where there's one or two rabbits in this dead end and the ferret is holding them up and the and the ferret is trying to get. If you think about the way the a rabbit, sorry, say if you think about a, a lion getting its prey, the aim of the ferret, it wants to actually get to the to the rabbit's neck that's where it's focusing to get the quick kill and that's what it's trying to do so that's the only time it will back up and then you just dig them out um so the only time you really hear a bit of squealing maybe is when they come out you catch them in the net and before you dispatch it, it's going to squeal which can be a bit unsettling for some people but it's, <laughs> yeah. it's so quick yeah so when they they ever start snacking on the rabbits while they're down there like let's say they get them to an end corner or something and then does the ferret normally get aggressive and start trying to kill it and then when you say dig down they're already dispatched and you just pull the rabbits out or what's that situation yeah look we feed our uh, ferrets before we take them out like i don't go like i don't take the dog out um and not give them a bit of a feed before we and likewise so in the old days used to, people used to say if you don't feed them they'll be more aggressive and more active in actually pursuing the rabbit and then you are then having to dig them out because they're actually eating the rabbit underneath. They've killed the rabbit, but then you're digging them out because they're eating, and then they'll go to sleep. So we feed ours a little bit before <laughs> we go out. Yeah, right. So if they do catch a rabbit underneath and dispatch it, <clears throat> they'll move on to the next one. So they don't carry on eating. It's just they love to chase. It's natural for them to, to flush those rabbits. So if they do find one, and generally speaking, it's probably going to be the smaller ones that they'll kill first if they can find them, and they move on to the next. Um, and if I'm digging them out, nine times out of ten, they're, they're just still trying to get to the rabbit. Um, and occasionally they have managed to kill them. But because the rabbits will bunch up, bunch right up, they're trying to get through from the back. And because they've got the thick fur, the ferret can't actually get can't get through. So they're pretty much untouched. And the only time I'll find them really is they'll, you know, where they've gone through the neck, through the um, through the vein there. So yeah, it's, when you uh, one thing when you like, let's say you know you got to dig them out or whatever. When you've dug down, are the uh, some of the rabbits being still like you know like alive and like oh ready to jump out, and you got to try and grab them or something. What's the situation there? Yes, yeah. I think the most we've done is pulled out like that. It's five in one go, uh, and they were backed into a blind, and all of them had, were untouched, but the ferret couldn't get to them. So yeah, so yeah, you dig out, and you often you'll find you, they're still they're still alive because the ferret hasn't got them. So physically yeah. can't get to um, dispatch them. So and how do you yeah. how do you do that? Just grab them by the scruff of the neck? Are they trying to run away? Or I guess they can't yeah, really run away because you're digging them by a hole. The back legs, you grab them by the back legs and pull them out. If the ferret has got hold of one, you'll often the one that's that's dead. You'll be pulling the pulling that rabbit out, and the ferret will be hanging on to the front of the ferret. <clears throat> and when you pull them out, you just give them a um, I suppose a karate chop on the back of the neck, or using a priest. A lot of people who do fishing will have a priest, and they can use a priest or Another method is people where they do the quick um, when dispatching chickens at home, where you just dislocate the neck by pushing the, the head backwards. So it's really quick and it, it is humane. It sounds brutal, but when you think what's how animals are dispatched, it's not. It's just those that class it as brutal that really don't understand where their food comes from. Um, and that's another story we can talk about with RSPCA, but that's we'll leave that for a bit later if you want to talk. <laughs> what yeah. about the – like how far have you ever had to dig before? You know, like if there – you said there's been a bit of rain or there's not been as much rain that don't dig as deep or whatever. How how far have you ever had to sort of dig them out? Uh, well, we're lucky in Tasmania, I said, because the furthest I've probably had to dig is probably only about four feet down. Um, I reckon if you're – and in WA, it, where it's a lot hotter, you'd be digging a lot further because of the, the sand and they get down low. Um, and on the mainland, they probably do dig deeper as well. But Tasmania, we don't have deep warrants. 
UK you do. I mean, I've been hung upside down. So maybe I was about, what, 12, 13, and literally my my boots were outside of the hole, and that's how far I would have to dig them out. But in Tasmania, we don't have haven't come across deep warrens and haven't really come across really old warrens um, either. So quite lucky that I don't have to dig that deep. So with with the tracking collars, uh, give us a bit more info on that. How does that normally work? As in, you just run, you know, the the top part across the ground, so it gives you like if it makes a noise, you know, we'll dig right here. Is that so? Sort of works. Or? Yes. So it's a, there's a brand that's um, that my grandfather used um, years and years ago. So I think they're on Mark Three now. It's orange and cool. It's called a Devon brand. And what it does, it works 16 feet uh, horizontally. So you can pinpoint roughly where they are horizontally, and then it goes down eight feet vertically down. And pretty much it does a beep noise. And the closer you get to the ferret, and obviously the quicker the beep gets, and also it has an indicator light, an orange indicator light that moves along the scale. And it just and that moves along the closer you get to that location, um, the closer it will get to beeping really loud and the light gets a bit brighter. So they're really good. And it's just um it's a tool that I think anybody who's out there doing ferreting um who values their their pets and and doesn't want to spend hours and hours digging trying to guess where the, the ferret is, it's um worth it. And also the potential is a rabbit under there as well. So yeah, well worth it. They're not cheap, but um, well worth every penny in my view. Yeah, and it's a good way to utilise the meat. But talking about ferrets a bit more, this has probably turned into a great Tasmanian and ferreting podcast, which is what we might call it, I think. But uh, what about the, I guess, the upkeep and the cost of, of buying them? What's the sort of upkeep on a ferret cost to buy them? You know, they, do they need veterinary fees and all that sort of thing? And Yeah, look, the um, ferrets are quite a robust animal. Um, Interesting enough, because when the the COVID-19, they're actually being used to help find a vaccine. So the problem, uh, well, the challenge with ferrets is that they can catch the flu. They've got a lung system, which is quite similar to humans. So if you've got the flu, they can catch the flu and get quite sick. Um, but in terms of upkeep, they're pretty self-reliant. They're quite a clean animal. They'll go to the toilet in a in, in the same spot. Um, they To buy them, for a good quality one, you're paying somewhere about $80 to $120. Uh, and yep. then you probably pay about $150 plus to get them um, desexed. Because if, <clears throat> if you don't know what you're doing, you don't want to be just, just breeding them for the sake of breeding them. And it's just personal choice then if, it, if people prefer the males, which we call um, the hobs or, or the jills are females. So it just comes to personal choice. The breed pretty much once, maybe twice a year. Average litter might be about seven or eight. Um, one thing that a lot of novices don't understand is that they go, oh, I'll just put them into a rabbit cage. But often those rabbit cages don't have good locks on them and a rabbits are like Houdini. If they can squeeze their little head through or find a way to, to, to get out of their cage, they will. So you have to have a good, robust cage um, because if they do get out, you know, the neighbours, dogs and cats will um, unfortunately kill them. So, But they're quite a little robust little animal. A lot of people have them as pets. A working animal should be a pet the same way. There's exactly the same temperament. And in terms of feeding them, well, they don't cost very much at all. You just got to make sure they have fresh water and they'll eat um, chicken, any sort of offal that you've got, you know, chicken necks and, of course, uh, any bits of rabbit you don't want to eat, um, they'll eat the rabbit. So and I feed mine sometimes a bit of wallaby that I've got spare wallaby or some off-cuts of venison. If I've got some venison that's that we've been lucky enough to get. Um, but, yeah, um, and they can eat lactose-free milk, but no chocolates, no onions. Um, and I like them because they are carnivores, true carnivores, so, which is great. Yeah, very good. Let's take a quick break, guys, and we'll be right back. The new Zeiss Conquest V4 line of high-performance rifle scopes combines tried-and-true Zeiss optics with a rugged and functional design, providing high-definition glass. Enhanced with T-Star and low-to-tech protective lens coatings produces 90% of the eye-light transmission. This means excellent low-light performance and resolution across the entire magnification range. Zeiss Conquest V4 rifle scopes were designed as a lightweight, high-performance scope for demanding hunting and shooting applications. Visit O. USAAustralia.com.au to find your local dealer. Zeiss, we make it visible. Adrian, I want to talk about one thing that I was actually going to ask you more so about ferrets. So what is their, do they have a working life? How long do they live for? Do they, you know, like get a bit old, obviously, as they naturally any animal would, and then they're probably no, not much good to use anymore and just keep them as pets. But how long are they sort of, you know, good in being able to sort of flush rabbits out for? 
Yeah, well, the average age, uh, as I mentioned earlier, they, to live to is about seven, and they can live longer than that. Um, so once mine gets around about five or six, I sort of retire them and just let them have a good life, just staying at home and, and running around because they're quite a sociable animal. So a um, bunch of ferrets is called a business. So we keep a few together because they like to be together. Um, but after about five or six, I give them a bit of a rest. Um, but they're pretty active right up till then because I said they've got a really high metabolism. So they don't catch a lot of diseases. A lot of people say um, you've got to give them flea treatment because obviously rabbits have got fleas. Um, they're no different to a dog there. But they, their diatrap, their um, digestive system is such that they don't really um, run the risk of catching worms. So you don't have to worm them if you don't want to. Um, but one thing they can catch if you're going to strange areas that you're not aware, they can get the um, the canine distemper. So it's useful to have them to give them a vaccination once a year against that if you're going to areas where there's a risk of that. But most people these days do vaccinate their dogs, so it's not such an issue. Um, and uh, what's the other thing I was going to say about them? That um, How many have you got right now anyway, like on hand? How many ferrets either working or and or retired? Yeah, we've got eight and one's, one's oh, retired. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so because we rotate around. We generally take about four out at the time. So I have them in sort of like three different areas. So they have little families because like like people, some of them get on better with others than the, the other ones don't. So I rotate them. So I have um, them in three different sets. So we take out four at a time. If I'm doing a long day, then I'll probably take eight with us. Um, yeah, it's, that's interesting. That so they they obviously like you know humans where you get you know pissed off at our other counterparts. Sometimes do they do they ever get like pretty rowdy and do damage to each other or no? You no, know, well they can during the mating season. The males in particular, um, if you think about like a deer where they pee on themselves and and go into rut, uh, then it's pretty much the same with a male ferret, and that's when they do stink because they'll wee on themselves to make it. That's their that's their um, aftershave signature um, scent signature <laughs> scent that's right and uh, two males together during mating season if there's females around will fight and they probably would fight to the death i think because um i've seen a lot of youtube clips where it's happened and uh, yeah it's not pretty um so the male ones during mating season you definitely have to separate and also as well it's probably a good idea that once the mated is to remove that male one out once she starts to have the young the kits we call them kits as the young because there are, they have been known to the males or then to to eat the young if they're in that same same cage. We then separate the males back out. Um, but generally speaking, they're quite a social animal and, and get on pretty well. It's just during that mating season where things can just go haywire. How long's the the mating season for? Because you certainly do know a lot about it. So this is this is great. Yeah, mating season generally when it starts to warm up. So uh, it can, it's normally in Tasmania, it can start as early as September and it can actually run right up till, till January um, or even February. Um, it just depends on the conditions. So what happens is that because they originated from the polecats, the females, when they come into season, historically they were the, the wild polecats, they were solitary animals and only came together during the mating season. And so what happens is the females come in the season and in season for an extended period of time. And if they're not mated, they can get a um, like a blood disease that can actually slowly can kill them. So you have to either mate them or get them G-sex. So if you're not knowing what you're doing and you want them as a pet or still or want them as a working animal but you don't want to breed them, it's highly recommended that you should always de-sex um, your ferrets. To be honest, no different to any other um, pet that you have, it's always best to do sex. And, but we breed them and sell them and and judge them at Royal Hobart Show. So that's the reason why we're we're quite selective on what we breed. How often so, do you how often do you do the breeding, or do you breeding them just to give them to other hunters, or sell them, or or show them, or because it seems like it's yeah. a bit, bit of a good in, big uh, industry. Yeah, oh, it's, I don't do it for the money side of it because you, you never get rich out of it, and you you know you probably only sell. Um, you know, they're about eighty dollars each, one hundred and twenty dollars. So we probably breed them once every two or three years. So what we do is to, because they've got to be mated every year. If you got them, I actually have a vasectomy ferret, and what he will do, he'll take the ferret, the female ferrets, out of season. So I don't have to breed every year, and I don't like to keep breeding um, a ferret every year. I think they need a bit of a rest. It takes a lot out of them, um, and that's the biggest problem, I suppose, across Australia. Is unlike dogs and cats, we actually don't have registered breeders there's are some people that try and claim they're registered breeders but there is no national association and that's something that down in tasmania a few of us are trying to get together to actually set up a national association so that we can 
advocate for the fact that more people should get out and do ferreting and have them as pets and be responsible hunters. Um, so that's that's something that we're playing around with at the moment. Um, try and see if we can re-educate people and say, look, don't use poisons. I really, I personally hate 1080. I hate Pintone. I think they're very, I hate the viruses. I can understand why some people think, you know, the vermin they need to be get rid of, but it doesn't mean you need to be humane about it. I mean, myxomatosis is a classic example, which you might know about, you know, a rabbit can just slowly starve to death over a period of four weeks. That's not humane. Um, and it's also now everyone says, oh, these viruses don't jump species. Well, it's already been proven after I don't know how many years myxomatosis released that it's impacting on the native hare and, and has made them an endangered species in Spain. And they're getting episodes of it in the UK as well now. So no one's ever done long-term studies on viruses, and uh, I just don't think that's the right way to go when, you know, we should be eating the problem. Um, that's the way I think about it. So there are a lot of people using, you know, like do you have any other friends or anything like that uh, that have wanted to get into it because of what you guys are doing down there with ferreting and, you know, being able to sort of, you know, get the rabbits by trapping them and that way I guess less hassle isn't having to try to head shoot them or, or, you know, with a shotgun or something. I've done a fair bit of that recently and, you know, it's not great eating, you know, the, the I guess, small pellets out of a rabbit sometimes when you're trying to enjoy your meal. Yeah, I know. A lot of people use the 410 over the ferrets uh, for the rabbits, and I reckon that's a lot of fun. But um, down here, I just haven't had the opportunity to do it because there's not big areas we can do it. And there, and the beauty of it is not, yeah, there's no, um, there's no buckshot in any of the rabbits. But yeah, we get people asking us all the time. We've, we've taken a few people out and showed them how to do it, and um, there's quite a few people now that are showing interest. Um, you know, because people want they want to find a nice cheap way of feeding their their pets, whether or not you see a ferret or your or your dog. I mean. You know, dogs love rabbit as well. So, yeah, we're starting to see a lot more people, and there's quite a few forums now around Australia talking about ferrets, and it's a good adjunct to, to going out shooting them as well because sometimes you just want to go out for a few hours during the day, and, well, the rabbits are underground. They're not out running around. They can have them on the spotlight. So it's a nice adjunct to do it. And when they're on the shipping containers and, and in suburbia, um, I haven't yet generally found too many issues about people saying, can I um, – can I help you get rid of your rabbits? And that's why we started doing it, really, because a lot of people we're dealing with have horses, and horses and rabbit holes don't go together. Um, and when you've got flighty horses and you can't use a suppressor on, on your firearm, um, and these are expensive horses, well, you really only got one choice to get rid of the rabbits. They don't want to use poisons and chemicals, and fair enough, totally agree, and that's where we come into it, and we can help remove the rabbits for them. So it's a win-win, win-win for everybody. Let's go a quick break, guys, and we'll be right back in just a few moments. Are you looking to buy a new or used firearm? Do you want to sell that safe queen to fund your next purchase? Then go to OzGunSales.com. We have over 200 registered firearms dealers Australia-wide and thousands of shooters using the site daily. There are over 2,500 firearms listed, so you're certain to find exactly what you're looking for. We have over 50 years of firearms industry experience, including eight years online. So why wouldn't you advertise with us? The one and only genuine original Ozguns. Adrian, if I had to, you had to pick one, would you say Rabbit was your favourite game? Ooh, um, in terms of eating or catching? Oh, let's say a bit of both, to be honest. Let's say, you know, yeah, for the way you're able to hunt them, for, for flavour and taste, for, you know, the quarry that they represent and the interest in um, going out and hunting them, I guess all of the above. Yeah, oh, that's a hard question. I do like my wallaby and I do like my venison and uh, I do a bit of that as well, um, you know, not as enough as I'd like to. Um, in terms of gentleman hours, I have to say rabbiting is really good um, because you're out pretty much – early in the morning and back around about three, four o'clock. So I don't have to do those really early starts and I don't have to be out at night time. It's really cold with, with the spotlight. So from the convenience of it, I think it's great. Um, and compared to when I'm out shooting the rabbits, generally speaking, I don't think I've ever, we, I think what have we got? We've got 35 in the space of an hour without with the ferrets. Um, I just can't shoot that many. So I think in terms of getting bang for my buck, um, I have to say rabbiting. But I do like getting a wallaby and deer, so, um, you know, their taste is completely different. I have to say ferreting is probably my go-to, yeah. When you're actually, like, putting, say, the ferrets down in the warrens, like, what's the, you know, average on, say, how many rabbits would you find, say, in any one, 
you know, Warren, I know it depends. I'm not sure if you guys had a lot of rain down there, but we've hardly had any up here for the last couple of years. Then all of a sudden, probably in the last three to four months, we've had a lot of rain and rabbit seems to have picked up quite considerably. So how many will you sort of get in a Warren normally? Depending how big that Warren is, it's a bit of a, uh, an open-ended question, that one. So, look, if, if there's probably, generally speaking, if there's only two – Two exits, you know, get two or three. If it's, you know, more exits than that, um, you know, you can get 10, 12, 15. It just depends. And certain times of year, you're obviously going to get more because they've got the, the the young ones through. But um, generally speaking, we might go out for a couple of hours, might only do one warren, but we'll come back with a brace, two or three rabbits, you know, just just down the road. So it's, it's hard to say. It's a very difficult question to answer that one because of the fact that it's so variable. Um, as I said before, we went to uh, one place on the Warren and literally they were coming out like popcorn. Um, I was, you know, catching one in one hand, one through my legs, and then we got 35 in an hour and, we, and they were just coming out <laughs> everywhere, you know. So it just depends on on the area and whether or not there's been recent releases. If the mixo, because myxomatosis naturally exists in the population um, already. So certain conditions, you will see that materialise again that will come up. So... Um, it just depends what's knocking them around and how effective we are. Um, and you can tell when you pick up a rabbit like anything if it's diseased. Um, you can tell by its eyes and its skin and its liver and everything else. So there's no risk from that perspective. And you can't actually catch whether um, on the um, the Korean virus, the K5 virus, or anything like that from rabbits. It's pretty pretty safe. And you, you like anything, if it smells funny, you just don't eat it. Yeah, when they're uh, interesting, I've never grabbed them by hand. I, <laughs> I don't know if that'd be my cup of tea because I'm probably not used to it. You know, like it's when I gutted my first deer, I was like, oh, this is, this is definitely very interesting. But when you grab them, do they, you know, I guess if you grab them by the legs, that, that's fine. Then yeah, they try and nip you or anything. Are they like that or nah? They're just scared and they just start squealing. How does it normally work? Uh, look, they, they can bite, um, you know, because they are rodent. They can bite. Uh, I know Sean has been bit <laughs> once, especially with the yeah, old bucks. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, they're generally because they and they the biggest problem you get is that they will scratch, um, because they they scratch and they've got those long, long claws on the back and they can scratch you. Um, they're, and they're quite feisty when they're trying to get away. Um, but the beauty of another reason why I do like the fact of rabbiting is because the skin comes off like a sock. You know, when you're buttering, when you're doing a gutting of a wallaby or deer, it's a lot more of a process to do that. But when you're pulling down a, a um, gutting a rabbit and skinning, it's like pulling a sock off the skin and gutting it's pretty easy and the guts will drop out. So from that perspective, it's a nice convenient um, way of getting your food without having to go through carrying, you know, 50 kilos on your back, which is, you know, of a deer. Um, so from that perspective, yeah, it's a lot easier. Yeah. Is there and, any uh, one thing, is there any licensing needed for ferreting or anything like that to use them as like a, a hunting companion or anything like that or no, nah, it's just have at it and have fun sort of thing? Pretty much in Tasmania. Certain states have got different restrictions. Some states you've got to have a permit. Others, other states, I think Queensland, from memory, you can't own um, uh, ferrets at all, or even rabbits from from memory. But in uh, Tasmania, no, it's pretty much just like having a um, a cat. I suppose you don't need a license or anything for cat. And I think you should have to have a license for a cat. But no, there's no requirements in terms of taking them out hunting. Um, they just need obviously permission from the land that you go on. So, and that's something we always do. And because it's their land, we always ask them if they'd like some rabbits afterwards. So, always ask permission. Um, people can only say no. Um, that's probably the only thing that you need to consider. And we also consider where what we do with the guts. We generally drop them back in the holes and backfill them where we can because it's just polite to leave the place better than what you've done because you are a guest on someone's property. Even though you're doing a service for them, you still got to have some respect. How far do you normally have to travel when you know you go hunting? Is it you know ten minutes, an hour? How far do you normally have to go? Oh, uh, look, we can we can do it within ten minutes, but we can do it in two or three hours across the state. We go everywhere across the state. We because we're you know I'm from WA. I used to travel a fair bit to go to work. So for us, traveling in Tasmania isn't a problem. Um, most Tasmanians go if it's more than ten fifteen minutes that they won't go. But we'll go all over. But in general terms, probably about half an hour to an hour's travelling time for us. Um, there's quite a few rabbits running around. Uh, and within a couple of hours, two and a half hours, pretty much in deer country and wallaby country. So Tasmania are quite lucky in that regard that um, there's a lot of open space and um, places that you can go, a lot of public land that you can go hunting on. And there's lots of rabbits in suburbia and people are only too willing to uh, have you in because 
they don't want to use poisons and chemicals, as I keep mentioning, because the risk with secondary poisoning for their their own pets or some of the wildlife. So, yeah, I'm I'm not sure if I committed the cardinal sin. Did I ask you where you were from? From but uh, what part of Tasmania are you currently living? Yeah, no, you didn't. No, so I'm down south. So we're just outside of Hobart. Um, yep. Hobart is the capital city of Tasmania. So we're down south, and we've got family up in Burnie. So we'll often go and do some hunting from out that and stay overnight through the Burnie area. So that's only what. Four four hours drive, four and a half hours drive from here to, to the Burnie area in the northwest. Um, you know, we'll, we'll we'll travel over. And sometimes we'll stay overnight and do Launceston, which is the the other capital of Tasmania. Some people like to call it. <laughs> where they do the football. Yeah, I want to talk about just in just in general, just um yeah, just about Tasmania in general. I guess climate. We'll start with that first. Yeah, look, it's um we don't it doesn't seem to be advertised well enough for hunting but hunting is really good in Tasmania in my perspective because we've only got what half a million people and there's most things you can hunt all year round generally speaking i mean there's some great stuff you can hunt the temperament we've got four seasons which is really good so generally we say our warmest months are from december to march um, but it can change in a day we'll get snow sometimes during december so you can have four seasons in one day in tasmania um, and spring, generally speaking, get the winds. Um, but you can hunt. We don't have a range of deer in Tasmania. We have the fallow deer, and there's a number of hunting outfits out there. Obviously, the wild brown trout is probably our premium trout in anywhere in Australia, probably even some of the scenery rivals out of New Zealand. So you can do trout fishing from, was it, August to April, and private fisheries are open all year round, and there's some excellent guides in here. and in Tasmania to take advantage of. You know, we've got wild duck. I think we've got five species we can hunt in Tasmania. You know, the mutton bird, the wallaby. Wallaby is a, a um, semi-protected species. It's an major species, but you can hunt wallaby. And interesting enough, it's the government allows poisoning of 1080 and wallaby, which which really I find uh, bizarre. Obviously, quail. We've got quail. And on the islands, you can actually go hunting for Cape Barren Goose and the common pheasant. Uh, which is pretty good. And if you're lucky enough to have crop protection permits, you can get a few um, – you can still obviously do deer out of season if you've got crop protection permits and the um, the foresters where there are, some areas are in plague proportions. And obviously there's the um, sea fishing with the, the tuna that run through, which is pretty cool. Yeah, right. I want to talk about wallabies. I think that's very interesting. But we've just got another quick break, guys. We'll be right back in just a few moments. The National Shooting Council has launched legal action against the decisions to effectively close gun shops in Victoria, Queensland and Western Australia. The closures were made for political reasons and are having devastating impacts on the livelihoods of people who are trying to run the shops that we need to keep. If you would like to support the fight to keep our gun shops open, then get behind the National Shooting Council today. To become a member or donate to the legal fight, just go to nationalshooting.org.au. Mate, tell us about wallaby hunting in... Uh, Tasmania, I know it's obviously, I think it's illegal up here. I've never, uh, you know, you can't shoot wallabies or ruse unless you've got the sort of tags and stuff. So what's the, what's the situation with it down there? What's the legal requirements? How do they taste? Uh, give us a bit of a rundown on wallaby hunting. Yeah, look, wallaby's really good. Um, it's You've got to have a permit to, to take wallaby. And the different uh, wallaby uh, in Tasmania compared to, the say, rock wallaby that have sometimes in the mainland, they're literally in plague proportions. If you ever came down to Tasmania, you, you see them, unfortunately, get hit on the road all the time because of plague proportions. There are just so many of them. The amount of damage they cause to the crops and fences with the burrow underneath. We've got two species, um, the Bennets and the Paddy Mullins. And the flavour, if you had kangaroo, kangaroo can be, well, for people not sure, it's quite gamey and often people say we need to marinate it, where wallaby is really mild um, and you can get it in the restaurant. It's a really tasty meat. I pretty much call it um, rabbit on steroids uh, in terms of its shape. That's what I like to call the wallaby. Um, and you can, you can hunt during the day uh, on forest land, on public land for them. A lot of guys and girls will go out and they'll use their hunting dogs to flush them and they'll shoot them um, with their with their shotguns as they get flushed through. Um, and then the other way people often do it is if you've got a farmer that you know on a crop protection permit, if they've got crop protection permit, you can shoot them on the spotlight. But just an a everyday recreational shooter, yes, you can get a permit to shoot them, but you can only shoot them during the day and that has to be either with your dogs or just walking around stalking and, and trying to flush them as they as they come from their sleeping area. They're mostly active late in the evening and throughout the night, um, hence the reason why most people during the day will use their dogs to, to flush them. So and that's probably different 
I suppose, to a lot of areas of the mainland is um, hunting dogs here. You're not allowed to use them to catch animals. You can get them to retrieve and to flush. You can't get them to um, physically grab them and, and bring them back like you used to do in the old days where you used to have lurchers chasing the hares and rabbits. Yeah. How do you normally, when you're hunting the wallabies, what's your go-to method? Uh, well, a bit of both. Um, I have done a couple of days uh, with some guys that go out with their dogs, but my, my preference is I like to to walk with the spotlight. And there's a couple of properties that we go to that just like to walk on the spotlight and and just quietly shoot them and then um, just bring them back. So, and I've, sometimes it's just nice to be driving with someone else on the with the spotlight out the side of the car with a two two three or a or a Magnum, something like that. So it just depends on the size of the property. Um, yeah. Yeah, so but they're good. They're lovely. The, the pelts are great, and the meat is um, more people should be eating it. So if you ever see wallaby in the in your shops, definitely try it. It's um, an underrated meat, and given that we've literally got plague proportions of them, you wouldn't believe how many there are. But they they're just everywhere. Um, you see them all over the place. So driving at night time in in the early morning and dusk is. Um, you know, a lot of people have to have a rhubarb because of the fact that even though you try to avoid them, and I don't like running things over, even though people go, oh, you're hunting, you must like to just kill things. I try to avoid things that uh, I'm not actually out to hunt. And But wallaby are a little bit stupid, and they run along the side of the car, and the last minute they'll just divert into the car. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it is a bit of a problem. I know. One roo took out my uh... – uh, part of my back and my back tray i <laughs> i was driving they were running the same way as me and so i backed off and then i thought oh no and then he just he beeline hard left and i thought oh he's going to end up in the side door and it's going to you know cost me some insurance money but i sort of just oh shit like i was in third and i was sort of you know high revs in third because i got a manual and I sort of planted it as soon as i saw him beeline and then he i thought he went out of the back wheel but then i came back later on and one of my uh rear lights has got like a protector on it like any alloy but it just totally bent the crap out of it. And I thought, oh, that little bloody roo, you know. I don't know what yeah. happened to him. Because I went, well, went back along that uh, area and didn't see him there. So he must have hit it, bent it, and then probably ran off. But, yeah, it certainly yeah, little buggers. Yeah, he some big uh, kangaroos over there, that's for sure. So yeah, our equivalent, I suppose, kangaroo is the forester, and they can get really big too. But the wallabies are not that big, but they can still do damage to the front of the car. But and if people do inadvertently like hit any animal, because they can have young all year round, it's just advisable just to just to check them, um, just to make sure there's no young in there. So even though some people class them as a pest, you know, you still have to have respect for the animal. And I think that's one thing that as hunters um, we know about, but there's the anti-people out there that continue to try and put their point of view to say that we're not compassionate and we don't care. Um, and that's just to feed their own ego rather than anything. So I think more of people and hunters can can educate people. As much as I'm going to listen, just keep telling people, no, we do care. We have pets. We love animals, but we like eating them. There's nothing wrong. It's not a conflict to say you love an animal and like eating it. It's quite normal. And that's something that, you know, my wife, Shauna, and I do as well. We're just we're passionate to try and educate people where we can if they want to listen about the, the values of uh, of your food. Um, you know, you eat what you want, don't have a problem with it, don't claim you've got the moral high ground because no one does. It's about just having respect. So it's something that we, you know, that's why it's great I'm actually talking to you, Jason, on here because it's an opportunity again to try and help people. And if we've had a number of people come down the state, we'll take them out rabbiting and, and fishing and stuff if we can or point them in the right direction of um other places to go so there's a lot of people out here that just love to take people out tasmania is a great hunting location um it just hasn't had the marketing that it, that it deserves um even the trout fishing doesn't get the marketing deserves compared to new zealand but it's uh yeah more people should be coming down especially once this covid virus finishes um regional tasmania needs as many help as can and what a great way to travel locally come down to Tasmania, have some great food and meet some great people. So a bit of an advertising for Tasmania. <laughs> we should run an ad, you know, visit tasmania.com.au. <laughs> yep. <laughs> what about, um? Uh, I guess winter is probably pretty cold down there, probably what, have you got a fire down there or something, one of those little combustion yeah, fires keep wood, you warm down there? Yeah, wood fires. It's actually a funny story in that context. When I first came to Tasmania, they were talking about these heat pumps um, and obviously because I've been living in WA for quite a while and they don't really get cold there and you have the air conditioners again. What the hell is these heat pumps you keep talking about? And then I looked at it and said, oh, your air conditioner's on back to front. So because it gets really, really cold. Um, we don't, I don't like air conditioners or heat pumps. Or we have a lovely wood fire because um, I just don't think you can beat that heat from the wood fire, So especially when you've got a nice glass of wine and wood here in the middle of the winter. Yeah, it gets really cold. 
But also then, yeah, fishing and hunting can be really good in winter because you don't get those winds. You just rug up for it. So, and I'm I'm not a warm uh, climate person. I much prefer the colder weather, and I just uh, I much prefer it. Um, you know, we've got because we have the four seasons. So when we're out out rabbiting, you know, we can get so many berries, blackberries, and raspberries, and slows, and I'll make a bit of homemade slow gin as well. So that's why we look forward to the to the seasons because you just know there's so many things that come on just before winter that's just there. You know, wild apples, there's so much food just uh, sitting there to be just to be used. Weeds, you know, that you think about it. Nettles, nettle gnocchi and nettle soup. We actually had nettle soup last night, you know, which goes really nice. So it's yeah. um, it's a great place to be and you don't have to travel that far and um, to actually go out and enjoy the great outdoors. It's, yeah, I'm happy I live here. I'm glad I chose it. Would you ever leave Tasmania? No. For uh, hunting holidays to, to experience Just, something yeah, different? Relocating, yeah, relocating, or you go uh, I would in... never relocate. No, yeah. this is this this is home. This place is great. No, I love it. Mm. Um, what yeah. about wallaby versus uh rabbit for taste of game meat? One or the other, you have to pick one. Uh, oh that's a hard one. Um in terms of being more forgiving to cook, I'd go wallaby. In terms of uh, have a little bit of care, I'll go with the rabbit. Um, so they're both versatile. Um, but, yeah, wallaby is really good. Yeah, and so is rabbit. But I I couldn't choose between the two, I'm, I'm afraid, on that one. <laughs> what about bird hunting in Tasmania? Any bird hunting? You think you said pheasant before? I don't think they got duck, if I'm correct. I mean, I don't look at every single legislation around the country, but tell us about some any bird hunting you can do in yes. whether on public or private land in Tasmania. Yeah, you can. Um, interesting. I, I'm not a duck hunter yet myself. Um, you know, I've taken I've taken the opportunity to start to read up again to get my duck identification license during this um, COVID virus and to look, take some more learning. But yeah, there's there's five species of duck you can hunt in Tasmania on public and private lands um, on certain areas that you can do. You know, obviously you'd be aware of the what have we got from memory? I think we've got the um, uh, black duck and the grey teal, chestnut teal, mountain duck and the wood duck you can legally hunt under permit. You've got to have the identification licence. Um, and Cape Barren geese um, you can do um, on the islands, which is up in the, the Fornax group. So the Flinders, I think Flinders and King Island, and they're beautiful places to go to. And King Island, you can go um, hunting pheasant. I think you've only got two days to hunt pheasant. And the Cape Barren geese, I think you can have there's a limit of twelve per hunter. Again, you have to have permits and stuff like that. So, and that's generally done at um, the Flinders Islands, which is a beautiful place too. So, there's lovely, lovely islands off Tasmania, well worth visiting. And everyone knows about King Island cheese, so that's a great place to go to. And I think they've got wild um, turkeys on King Island as well. Quail, there's quail running around as well. So I've seen quite a few when I'm out there wallaby hunting sometimes when I'm out rabbiting. So, but I don't own a shotgun yet. So oh, I've got to make, you've got to get, get a shotgun. You've got to get one. I know. We've got to buy another safe first. There's a limit. With Shauna and I both hunt, you know, there's, um, there's we're running out of space. So she's got quite a few firearms and so have I. So we've just got to save up the money. So we want to get his and hers. <laughs> I know. I always tell people when you get the gun safe and it says 12 it's not really. <laughs> it's a four at best, depending on what sort of guns you got. Maybe if you got a couple of twenty twos or some shotguns with some small optics or something like that. But if you get into any heavy, heavy barrel with big scopes or anything, like halve it and then take two gun off the half from that, you know. So you're better yeah. off getting like a twenty five or a thirty. Yeah, you might pay a bit extra, but at least you're gonna if you ever get more or you want to upgrade or put some extra stuff in the safe, maybe some household items or whatever, you know, you, you got something big enough to be able to use. Yeah, exactly right. You can never have enough firearms. It's like golf. You, you need different club for different different things. And I think that's a lot of people that don't understand that, you know, we, we do a lot of target shooting as well. Is that they don't really understand that you need a different tool for a different application. Um, you know, yeah, I'll go and shoot rabbits, say, with my twenty two, but then sometimes I might want to shoot it with a Magnum or I might want to get an air rifle, you know, because different application for different purposes. So, you know, you, you really – I want to get more firearms because there's a lot more things I want to do. I've got to save up for it because the different applications need to use it. I mean, my target rifle is different to what I do from hunting rifles. It's different. If I was doing more bench shooting, I need a heavy a heavy rifle, but I'm not going to use that hunting because it's going to way too much to carry. So, And that's what people don't understand when they go on about, oh, people got arsenals. It's not an arsenal. They're just tools. 
and we're the most scrutinised members of society. Um, and with, I'd rather know that someone next door to me happens to be a hunter because I know that they're most scrutinised and the police checked with somebody who can't get a firearm licence. So I think we've got it the wrong way around in society at the moment. But, um, yeah, that's, that's probably another story for another day. A couple of just questions before we finish off. So what's it like down there? I mean, you know, you obviously meet a lot of different people. Some people aren't hunters, et cetera, especially, you know, what happened in Port Arthur. It's, you know, and you say you're a firearms owner in Tasmania. Won't say it's the, the home of gun control, but I guess it's the home of the quote unquote, the event. So what's it like down there when you sort of say we go hunting, we go shooting, we like to get our meat, any, any sort of backlash or anything like that? No, there's yeah, there's uh, there's a lot of that um, that goes on. Uh, uh, if we talk about the Port Arthur, I mean, obviously, I didn't come to Tasmania when Port Arthur was on. I've, I've come afterwards, but it's um, it's obviously still raw for a lot of people who are directly touched, um, and rightly so that it was a thing. But it's it's to me uh, when you read through everything and check it, it's seemed to be used as a scapegoat. Uh, it was nothing to do with with legal firearm owners at all. Um, there's a whole thing around that which just. It's just it's a terrible event, but the legislation that came in 1996 has, has nothing to do with it when, in that scheme because people are going to do the wrong thing and do the wrong thing. They don't need a firearm to do that. Um, just look around the world where people are using vehicles to do it. So in terms of hunting, um, yeah, well, Tasmania has historically been known for being the, the green, um, I suppose, starting point, and there are, and even now I see on the mainland, you know, you get a lot of activists that are just carrying on like pork chops not understanding so yeah there's a lot of it around but um i think people are starting to uh get a voice and start to educate people a lot of restaurants now have a lot of wild game on their menus um and tourism has helped that so you often will see wallaby and uh, on most good quality restaurants these days so um, and you start to see rabbit appear uh, which sometimes is local rabbit but uh, mostly it's still imported rabbit and um and we've also got some really good Free range deer farms. So venison is on the on the menu too as well from these deer farms. So exactly, most people yeah. that we bump into are pretty good. And those that don't, if they're willing to listen, listen. If they don't, well, that's their choice, not mine. We just get on and, and do what we want. We're not looking to to make friends or enemies. We just live our life as we think that's the appropriate way for us. And I think I'm quite rich in the fact that um, I can have meat in the freezer that haven't paid $35, $40 that came from overseas. Exactly. What about, you know, shops and that? There are good abundance of shops down there. If people who live down there want to, you know, buy their firearms and their associated equipment. Of course, you know, postal is really good these days. You can pretty much get anything anywhere these days. So what's it like for your shops and your and your businesses down there in the hunting and shooting community? Yeah, they're good. They're, um, they're really good, really helpful, especially if you um, – they'll give you information. There's some of them that have that, uh, got outdoor activities as well, you know, in terms of, you know, camping gear as well. There's those that specialise just in the hunting side. And those that specialise in the fishing side and some across the board, we've had a new shop open up through the Launceston area. There's, so there's some really good shops uh, and they're easily accessible all through the state. Um, you know, there's obviously through the Central Highlands, there's a shop through there. I think there's two shops in there. And there's quite a few through the Launceston area and, and uh, the Burnie and down Sorrell and Glenorchy. Yeah, we're, we're well covered for shops. Uh, we can always need more, I think. But yeah, um, anything you need, you can pretty much get. And uh, I think the prices are reasonable and I've not met anyone in those shops that not willing to give you some advice uh, or some information. So that's been really good. Yeah. Our Go biggest challenge probably is always getting um, ammunition over the, over the water. Um, I know that was a problem a few years ago with bringing ammunition in, but I think that's got resolved. But uh, uh, in general speaking, anything you need, you can get hold of. So. Yeah, and just a small summary, just to finish off, you got involved with um, Shooters and Fishers to, you know, obviously advocate for the hunters and shooters down there in um, Tasmania. Just a quick summary of that. Yeah, look, I, I'm a volunteer there. Um, I said the purpose of doing it is just to try and get the people to understand the importance of um, reconnecting with your food and understanding that, you know, firearms are the safest sport out there It this this myth that they're dangerous, they're not dangerous. Um, I've had more injuries when I was playing round ball football and surfing um, than I've had any injuries with firearms. And the the community, it's it's one of those sports which it's inclusive. It doesn't matter if you're young, if you're old, if you're disabled, you know, no one cares about your sexual preference. Every, every range that I go to, um, you know, they're a really helpful group of people. And it's very family-orientated, you know what I mean? So 
um, people are willing to have a good chat and share ideas and stories. Uh, I think that's something that unfortunately that the media has lost because journalists have lost that ability to do um, what I call investigative journal journalism. And that's the reason why I got involved in Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party because we haven't had a voice in Tasmania for a long time. And it's important to people understand where the food comes from and cultures and tradition are well, from England as well. But the culture and tradition is the country you live in. And, and I think it's important that people realise that. And it's going to be very difficult um, for us to say, call, people talk about winding back the clock or um, making their regulations uh, watering down. It's not about watering them down. They're actually making improvements. I mean, it's illogical that you can't use a suppressor to go out and do pest control but you can go and poison an, a native animal with 1080 poison. Uh, that doesn't make any sense to me. Um, you know, so that's what we're trying to push for, and I got involved. If I could be a politician, I would be, but through who I work for, I'm just um, not able to do that, so I can help where I can and and uh, do a little bit, but it's still a fledgling party, but, yeah, and I, I, it's just something that's give people an opportunity for voting for somebody that's a party of reason, so... Yeah, definitely suppresses. I think as a you know short short to medium term thing, you know, getting access to that. Even if you know some people get upset and they say, well, we should, you know, oh, if we, we have to register them, then no, we're not negotiable. And I said, but you know, we've got to get them first before we can, yeah, you know, roll back, you know, a, a registering a particular item. You know, I'd rather get them, register them, and have them than than not have them at all. So I think that'd be a great you know tool for not only public land i mean i guess even for private land i know that probably the government's not going to want it on private land but for ranges um you know private property you know shooting at night 22s busting those rabbits you know and, and taking them home for food or pest control whatever it is you're on the farm to do i think that'd be you know i've been saying for people for a while now that's something in the short to me at least the medium term that we should be pushing for but you know we're asking the politicians but they're not very forthcoming in in, in trying to help us i know that you, the um premier down there was trying their yeah, a couple of years ago, but you know, as soon as they found out they wanted to do things, they as they normally do, they shut shop, and then oh, we can't do that now after they promised the world. So, yeah, that's right, and that's a It's because I think the same thing like appearance laws. Appearance laws are ridiculous because just because something's black, it's a dangerous weapon. It's like it's had nothing to do with it. If it was pink, you know, airsoft, you know, paintball, all those type of things. Some of, some of them are just toys. They can't hurt you at all. And I think unless people start to take that. Um, take their sport, their activity that's um, important and see it as it's a cornerstone thing. We're never, we're never going to achieve changes. Um, en masse, as hunters and fishers and, and uh, firearm owners and, and farmers as well that need those tools, if people were starting to vote smarter, we could make a difference. Um, it just needs people to be willing to give it a go and see what happens because the old tired political parties of the old days, um, they've been around for too long. Um, they're really not doing anybody any favours anymore. And I just think personally it's um, time for a positive change, you know. So let's let's make a difference. All right, Agent, thanks for coming on the show, man. Really appreciate it. I think, well, it's plenty on talking about Tasmania, but we actually got into uh, a very, very good subject of uh, talking about ferreting. So that's great, mates. Thanks for coming on to share that knowledge about, you know, utilising game meat, you know, hunting in Tasmania. And, uh, mate, thanks for coming on the show. I really do appreciate it. Hopefully we can catch up again soon. No problem at all. You've been listening to an episode of the Australian Hunting Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. See you next time.